This is episode 008 with Dan DeLion on Ancestral Health Radio. Learn to align your genetic makeup for peak health, fitness, and longevity with actionable how-to advice from today's leaders in nutrition, movement, and lifestyle. Join me, your host, James Kevin Broderick, as we bridge the divide between modern technology and our inherent ancestral wisdom. Let's take a walk on the wild side. Did you know that our human cells are outnumbered 10 to 1 by other microbes and bacteria? Well, now you do. And my guest today, Dan DeLion, herbalist and educator over at returntonature.us, shares his personal strategies to help realign our microbial health to its once robust, prolific environment. For many of us, we suffer from chronic inflammation of our intestines, which in many cases can lead to more severe health issues down the line. That's why in today's episode, you'll learn the problem with modern sanitation practices, the group of herbs Dan recommends we all grow to help combat modern infections, Dan's favorite fermented creations that you and I can both create in the comfort of our own homes, and much, much more. Dandelion is an earth herbalist, forger, musician, and teacher. He teaches through Return to Nature, providing classes, lectures, and seminars on wild food foraging, mushroom identification, herbal medicine making, as well as primitive and survival skills with a focus on wild foods and forest medicines. He also incorporates the philosophies of yoga, alchemy, meditation, and mysticism into his classes, lectures, and seminars and brings a deep-rooted indigenous medicine perspective of practicing intuition-based plants in a systematic and earth-based way. You can check out more what Dan's doing at returntonature.us. Good morning, Dan. I'm very excited that you're here joining me today. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Well, I thought maybe it would be a good idea to start with a little bit of your background, maybe how you got to where you are today. Well, I guess the easiest way of saying it is I feel that I grew up in New Jersey, of all places, in a time of really rapid transition, and um, the internet wasn't around until I was about 13 or 14 in my particular household, so uh, I spent a lot of time outside. I played outside really pretty much every day, all day, and there was a farm behind my house, and we just used to play out in the woods all the time. And as I grew up and got older and started uh, kind of realizing that most people didn't know anything about the ecosystem that they lived in as far as plants, um, that I had preserved something that actually was missing and that was actually being lost in future generations. So um, a lot of the plants that I now know all the bot- botanical Latin and everything about were plants that I actually played with as a child. And I have vivid memories of when I met that plant and you know, cutting open pokeweed and seeing its vascular system for the first time and how impressionable that was uh, when I was young. And just kind of exploring nature like that um, seems to be something that is missing in our uh, upcoming generations and yet is imperative for our health and survival and, uh, you know, perspective on reality. So um, I think it's a matter of just realizing that the things that we grew up with as sort of normal um, or traditional always end up being somewhat obscure by the next generations, especially with the race for technological advancement, et cetera. Absolutely. Yeah. That, you know, it's similar in the beginning of my story as well, too, where I did spend um, some of my childhood in the heart of Louisiana and Shreveport specifically, Mm -hmm. where I just remember me and my friends, we would go out, we would go hunting, we would go fishing. And, you know, I didn't necessarily have that type of connection to the plants, although I wish I did. And before I knew it, I was transplanted to Southern California, where all that knowledge that I could have learned from having those type of open spaces was completely gone. I I no longer had that. However, um, I believe you and I are are in similar age. And, you know, that's what we kids did. You know, we played outside um, parks, whatever it was, until the streetlights came on, until it was time to come home for dinner. But um, that's beautiful. I think that that's... um, 
that's amazing that you had that connection with plants so early on that you had recognized that in your youth. Yeah, it's a very interesting thing. I think if we had more of a hunter-gatherer or tribal setting in our family structures, we would see those uh, sort of tendencies in the children being uh, growing up, and we would nurture and meet that. So, you know, it's kind of like that would have been my particular skill set. Um, other people would be very good at hunting. Other people would be good at fishing, whatever it is, building shelters. And us as a tribe would be able to gain strength from the diversity of uh, that community. So that's very much, luckily in my position, my mom really loved growing plants and she always had a garden and a couple herb books around. So as I grew up and got a little older, those materials were already available to me. Um, so that's like, you know, the, the, the ability to watch and observe the future generations and meet those needs and kind of trick them into a deeper level of that sacred connection is, I think, really imperative for uh, coming generations. Absolutely. And just, just to share a little bit more uh, of, of my story there that I, I think is kind of important is that, uh, you know, I didn't need that type of information until it was too late. So for me, I had grown up in this kind of sick society where, to me, it was all about medicating myself. You know, I was trying to escape whatever it was, and I didn't need these plant medicines until it was already too late, until it was absolutely needed and there needed to be some sort of other alternative for me. So mm -hmm. um, I, number one, I just want to say thank you for, for doing what you're doing. I'm very grateful for the work that you're putting out there. And um, maybe uh, you, you have a project that's going on right now. And I think it's very important that uh, we recognize that. And I'd, I'd like you to share a little bit about that. You have a GoFundMe campaign. Can you can you tell a little bit about that? Surely. And thanks for, uh, you know, letting me share about it. Um, it's all started with basically the vision of trying to take uh, these teachings and these skill sets and travel to different communities and help raise their skill sets and community organization uh, as as a teacher, as well as sort of learn from them and film and document and visit cultures and indigenous people and find elders. And so the way that this medium uh, has been about is the idea of creating basically a forage mobile, um, an herbal roving apothecary. And so oh, I've been yeah. crowdfunding uh, for, I think, about four or five months and we're almost to the goal. And uh, it's basically uh, the Foraging Herbalism Roving Van School Project. And uh, with donations, we're offering a lot of uh, herbal gifts and consultations and mentorships. And uh, we even have T-shirts and tea blends and all kinds of things like that as thank yous to donating. And that's at uh, GoFundMe.com backslash Return to Nature. So anyone can really check out that project and the vision for that. And, uh, you know, I personally think it's time to start getting these small cottage industry communities, uh, let's say, organized and arranged uh, so that we can either kind of, you know, I hate to say weather the storm uh, or be the new paradigm that suddenly makes more sense than the old one. And today what we're going to talk about, just so the audience knows, is, is we're going to be talking about gut health specifically. What we want you guys to understand is that there has been a huge problem with sanitation. Maybe not a problem, I'm not going to say that. However, there, there has been an overlook of the organisms that make us us. Isn't that correct, Dan? Yeah. Yeah, and I think it is actually quite a problem um, for a number of reasons. And, uh, you know, we, we definitely have been targeting our primary immune system, and we forgot to realize that actually our, our immune system is microorganisms all over our bodies uh, that are our first line of defense. Uh, they also are key and pertinent in uh, upgrading our immune function and teaching our own immune cells uh, what's out there. So we are in actually a symbiotic relationship with microorganisms and that was completely overlooked in the fear and uh, basically the idea of transcending germs, uh, which turned out to backfire on us. And now we have huge health problems related to uh, sterilizing ourselves and as well uh, all the products that are 
aimed at sterilizing, um, whether it's spraying Lysol in a bathroom and having that get on our skin or inhaling that or whether it's cleaning products or soaps, um, antibacterial soaps, these are all contributing to disease directly. <clears throat> isn't, isn't it true that there, for every one cell in the human body, there are approximately 10 other different types of bacteria in our yeah. bodies? Yeah, and I think it's, it's estimated that 30% of your body weight is bacteria. And where exactly is that? All over your skin, in your armpits. The reason your armpits smell is because bacteria are there. Um, and in all through from your mouth to your anus, loaded with bacteria. There are microorganisms, so we have to realize that they're on a micro level. They're obviously not macroorganisms, not bugs. And so they can occupy a very small space. Many of them can occupy a very small space. Um, also to mention, they have about a 20-minute uh, regeneration. So that's where you get the idea and the fears of antibiotic resistance, which is becoming more and more popular. Even the Center for Disease Control is ranting and raving about the dangers of continued exposure to bacteria, uh, to our antibiotic substances in minute amounts, through factory farming, through injecting it into uh, feed uh, for livestock, and then they defecate that out into the ecosystem. Um, there's a lot of kind of behavioral changes we would need to make in a very fast way in order to kind of uh, cushion this epidemic that we're building. I have firsthand experience with this. My father, um, before he passed away, unfortunately, um, he had, at least this was the theory for us, I, I, I had to go into the doctor because I had an abscess growing underneath my arm near my armpit near the lymph. And I was like, what is this? I don't know what this is. And, and we went in, I got it lanced, um, you know, removed the pus, had it packed, and then also given antibiotics, but later found out that that was what is called a staph infection. And I had received that from my father who was a diabetic and he was in and out of the hospital. So he had picked that somewhat, somewhere up along the way while trying to heal his own needs. And in doing that, I also contracted what is now called, it's a drug-resistant bacterial strain. And the great thing is, though, through the knowledge, through meeting people like yourself, I've learned to actually combat these, these type of um, uh, negative infections through herbal medicines like oregano oil, specifically oregano oil, which has been a lifesaver for me, uh, colloidal silver and things like that. So for me, this is a very big topic because it's something that it doesn't happen very often. I don't get flare ups or anything like that. But as soon as it does start happening, and I do notice something sore in like an armpit or, or whatnot, I can treat that immediately with something that's natural, that is just about as potent, if not better than the antibiotics I was taking before definitely does uh, pose less health risk than antibiotics. And, you know, we should be clear, there is definitely a time and a place for antibiotics. Um, you know, it's about transitioning. Mm -hmm. The helpful thing to realize is that um, what we what our modern culture is, is based on right now is going from zero effort to needing antibiotics and very little self-practice uh, or awareness towards any herbal potentials. Um, so that's a real thing that uh, a lot of people don't let sink in is, is that most people do nothing, absolutely nothing. And that's why we're over relying on antibiotics because what are the other options, for example? Um, so you're mentioning oregano oil and colloidal silver, but there are, you know, 200 million herbs, which are also uh, show activity against bacteria, and that's because they have been co-evolving uh, with the same bacteria. Like, for example, staph is in the soil, and the microorganisms around that staph have actually been producing compounds against them. So then mm. some scientist goes and they take a soil sample and they isolate that um, that compound, and that is what they would use as an antibiotic. Of course, medicinal mushrooms, reishi, turkey tail, etc., are uh, some of the most profound. The mushrooms, the mycelium under the ground, are some of the most profound uh, new novel compounds that we're finding. But we have to be careful to not 
just isolate and extract and overuse those as well. So part of the reason oregano oil works so well for you is because we have not exposed the bacteria in and around us to that. So uh, we should be careful how, as herbalists, we vary that process and don't overuse one thing and don't fall into that same kind of antibiotics for everything mindset that uh, we've come from. What exactly happens to our bacteria when we do decide to take antibiotics? I mean, obviously, it's antibiotics. Um, right. But what type of effect exactly does that have on our on on the inside, on our physiology? Well, the interesting link uh, altogether, I think the the ultimate issue is that we get intestinal inflammation, and we are all kind of teetering on this intestinal inflammation. Um, slash porous uh, intestinal wall problem. And so ultimately what occurs from harsh treatment of the intestinal wall um, is this porous intestinal wall, which means fecal matter is absorbing into the bloodstream, causing you know, uh, more inflammation, which is causing uh, you know, more of, of a problem. And that's the kind of spiral, this inflammatory spiral that we're uh, kind of entering due to toxicity, due to antibiotics, due to Tylenol, due to everything. So it's said that one Tylenol causes pinprick holes in the intestinal wall. Of course, there's five, you know, five plants I can name right now that have uh, aspirin-like compounds in it: birch, you know, meadowsweet, wintergreen. Uh, you know, these are other options that would help people also reduce inflammation. So when we take antibiotics, essentially what happens is that they, the antibiotic cannot discern between the bacteria that we need and the bacteria that we don't want in our bodies. So there's a massive die-off of bacteria, and a lot of those are actually key for things like keeping your intestinal walls um, uh, uh, whole and not having inflammation in the intestines and having a whole situation in the digestive tract, which I, I, I associate with like soil fertility. Um, what we've just done in the last 20 years is basically eaten dry, crunchy foods, not mucilaginous, goopy, like think of okra, mm. think of flaxseed, think of chia, all this stuff that has slime sassafras leaf, mallow. I haven't all even these, thought about that. We are so afraid of that sensation, you know, and we have completely avoided that sensation, and yet we have replaced that by eating drying flour. So as a result, when you have a lack of moisture in your soil, what happens is the bacteria die, right, in a garden. If you don't water the, the plants, the whole place goes down. The plants die. Mm -hmm. What we know about the intestinal bacteria that are in there is they are actually responsible for secreting vitamins and minerals more than the foods that we eat. So when we eat broccoli, which has B vitamins, a large percentage of the B vitamins that actually absorb into our system are secreted because we fed the gut bacteria that broccoli. Mm. They broke it down and they poop or metabolize vitamins and minerals and even neurotransmitters such as serotonin. So that sounds very familiar to me uh, when you say that uh, if people are unfamiliar with, for example, a cow's digestive tract. I used to have a lot of people when I, I worked at uh, Mother's Market and Kitchen, um, which was this uh, vegan vegetarian store where I learned most of my uh, supplement knowledge. Uh, I would have people come in and they would say, uh, you know, you should be eating a vegan or vegetarian diet, look at cows. They only eat grass, and look how big they are, you know? And then until, you know, I did research on my own, and I found out that mm -hmm. these cows have something called a rumen, which yes. then what ends up happening is they eat this, they eat the grass, it goes into the rumen, they end up spitting this out, occurred after it has been processed by the rumen, which then has bacteria-rich proteins on that food that they then, again, redigest. So that idea kind of brought up how we yeah. are essentially not feeding ourselves, but again, goes back to the idea that we are feeding other organisms or this other ecosystem within our body. We're internally farming. Oh, I like that. So, so the cows are actually eating the bacteria with the protein in it. They're not eating grass. 
Right. And so we're essentially have a big hollow tube that we're feeding bacteria. Um, and the less we have, obviously, the less we can synthesize vitamins and minerals. Um, the less B vitamins, the less vitamin D, all these things um, that are so associated. And the number one thing, which is probably the most profound, which would literally stand everything we know about depression and um, uh, uh, SSRIs, uh, uh, selective serotonin, so serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac, etc., we used to think that that was all in your brain and that the la depression is caused by a lack of serotonin in your brain. And so therefore, they made pharmaceuticals to just make your neurons squirt out more serotonin to normalize you. Of course, we've seen those commercials that say side effects include suicidal thoughts and your legs falling off. That's <laughs> just and ridiculous. That's really scary. And so... Now, what has happened is they've actually found that 90% of the serotonin is actually produced in your gut, not in your brain. So pretty much all of that whole study of depression and how to cure and treat depression is needs to be thrown in the garbage. But it won't be because this is new scientific discoveries and it's such a slow – System, you think about what are they going to throw all the biology books out of every high school and reprint them? You know, right. that process is going to take a long time for anybody in the world to catch up to the new research that's happening with the microbiome and microbes and understanding the whole link that they have because we're taking the veil off of going, oh, we need to kill germs, we're scared of them, we need to be in a bubble too. Oh, wow, that's like cutting off your thumb. You know, like that's mm -hmm. an essential part of yourself and we've been killing it. So look at that. We're wrong. And um, the other factors to that, which are really interesting, is the, the pancreas and the appendix, which is so conveniently named the appendix because it means like eh, it's at the end of the bookshelf or it's like an extra part of you. So, of course, they would remove uh, those those organs out of people very easily and readily. Um, which is a nice insurance procedure, I'm sure, which helps people get more money. Um, that is actually associated. Now, both of those organs have been shown to regulate and mediate uh, bacteria in, in the system. Oh, and you know what? As a matter of fact, I was not aware of that. There's a lot of research coming out. Um, this is the first time really that we've taken the microbiome. That's uh, Anybody who, who wants can look up the Human Microbiome Project. They've actually tagged uh, all of the bacteria of several people and they're trying to develop basically a map of understanding bacteria. So in the future, what's going to happen because the medical industry works by isolation. So they're going to say, oh, the reason you have an ulcer is because you don't have this certain bacteria. Here's your isolated bacteria strain. Take this and call me in the morning, which is a step up. But it is still not the proper way of seeing it's still our a body. part of reductionalism, right? It's, it's still we're still trying to fit things in tiny little boxes with bows, right? Still trying to force round pegs into square holes. <laughs> exactly. Um, and that's the lack of what we would call synergy, and that gets us to understanding why fermented foods on your countertop are superior to taking, say, probiotic isolated pills. Um, and this whole idea of synergy um, in herbalism, and that's why I actually, you know, oregano oil is not my first pick because you also are extracting just the essential oil from a plant which has probably over 20 to 50,000 chemicals within it. And those essential oils are terpenes, uh, resins, things like that, and it's a very selective grouping of chemistry within a whole plant. So the idea is that you have been a Neanderthal for like 2 million years putting oregano on your food and now we've just completely stopped that. But the body is going, I really know what to do with oregano. I know what to do with the fiber. I know what to do with the cellulose. I know what to do with all the chemistry in there. And the more we seem to isolate and extract 
and I want to make a distinction because when you're talking about an essential oil, that is an alchemical process. The alchemists found that out, and that was like the highest that we needed to go. And it's very potent, and it's very intense, and it's very antibacterial. And then what we did from there is take it a step further and found that there is one active ingredient um, so we'd isolated it further. And if you look at that trajectory of how we take, say, oregano and we turn it into, you know, isolated constituents of oregano, what you see is that there's a greater and greater chance of side effects. So what that implies is that the body knows how to work with it less and less and less as it's broken away from its whole plant body. So you mentioned a few other herbs exactly that you might use as a counterattack, I guess you could say, if you were to have some type of infection. I, I know that forging and actually finding these plants on their own might not be totally possible. However, what would you suggest to somebody that might have an issue today? Let's just use me, for example. Say I do have a staph infection again and it flares up. Maybe how would you help me with my problem? Well, you know, the the issue with staph specifically is that you don't want it going systemic. So it really depends on how far along it is. And that's okay. the good of any herbalist is or any doctor to know their limits, to know what stage a person is at and what can be done from that stage. Um, so that's really the hard thing. There is no one staph infection. There is right. no one cause of a staph infection. And that already breaks us out of the reductionist paradigm of saying, oh, well, for this, take X. So it doesn't work like that, although our society forces the healers, herbalists, and doctors to be in that way. So along with that, obviously, there are a lot of herbs which have what we would call antibacterial or antiviral or combined antimicrobial properties. However, the first thing is that we need to realize that that's kind of a misnomer and it's actually probably more like bacteriomodulating, mm. viromodulating, because they're not killing bacteria. They're not, they're not designed to kill all the bacteria because they know that they need those bacteria on their bodies to also help them synthesize compounds. That is how chemistry is built. Mm -hmm. Plants and bacteria in a symbiotic relationship with mushrooms and soil and rocks. And that's where chemistry originated, not people. Um, so that said, there's a lot of options within – one of the things I like to remind people is – um, there are herbs with the species called officinalis. You may have heard of some of them. Salvia officinalis is garden sage. Rosemary officin Rosmarinum officinalis, that's rosemary. Marjoram has the name officinalis. Um, Lavandula officinalis is lavender. Mm -hmm. All of those plants which are officinalis are generally pretty darn safe, very easy to grow, Oh, uh, Melissa officinalis, that's another favorite lemon That's one bomb. of my favorite as well, too. Yeah, so that's highly effective against staph in the right dose, in the right timing, et cetera, et cetera. So those herbs generally can be like a home, home pod. Uh, someone can do a lot with just a couple of those potted plants wherever, even if they live in a city and it grows in a windowsill, they don't mm -hmm. need a lot of sunlight, or in somebody's backyard garden, doesn't need a lot of space, or et cetera, et cetera, or finding analogs to that in the wild, which there are. Um, so with that, you have the fact that no one gets a staph infection for the same reason, and it's not necessarily the staph, it's the immune system. Mm-hmm. So we have staph all over us. We have viruses and bacteria all in and around us. We are like loaded. So the question more becomes, why is this? Why is my immune system tanking and unable to deal with that? And that's, again, because we don't have necessarily a preventative uh, healthcare model. We have a acute condition healthcare model. Yeah. So even with herbs, we wait till we're sick, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so part of that is about educating ourselves towards the earliest onset of symptoms, right? And so a very small smidgen of what looks like staph is very different than a, you know, a necrotic, uh, <laughs> 
you know, growth. And so obviously, you know, when you say staff, it's like, well, is it a small bit? Is it a large bit? So oregano oil can be helpful in some cases. I would always think that drinking something like, you know, rosemary, thyme, oregano, and lemon balm in okay. maybe one one part, one part, one part, one part, right? Drinking about 32 ounces that of that a day plus having something topical uh, could be a way to start carving that situation uh, to be either less severe or, you know, not needed to. Okay, and that uh, was escalate. that was actually my next question. So we do grow these herbs that are specific to our own ailment. Uh, how would we go about preparing that? So if we were going to use those in, uh, are you saying just we make sort of like a tea out of these herbs? You know, generally a tea alone is not usually sufficient. Okay. Um, a tea is like a maintenance thing, you know. So f a lot of people get caught up in the idea of there are herbs, say there's a plant, rosemary, and then how do you prepare rosemary? It's kind of a wrong question because rosemary can be prepared in multiple ways. A lemon balm can be prepared in multiple ways. And so what we look for is, you know, we all know tea, right? Uh, let's use fancy words, infusions, decoctions, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, tinctures, all these words that we know of, salve, you know, ferment, etc. All of the mead, you know, all of those ways are ways to turn plants into something consumable. And when we do that, we sometimes concentrate or we sometimes lose aspects of those plants. Mm. So for example, like if you chop up oregano and put it in your salad, it's gonna be very hard to eat enough oregano to work with something like a staph infection because it's gonna burn your mouth. Right. If you make a tea, right, you're going to be able to drink a, a higher concentration, however it's diluted and you're gonna pee some of it out. If you make it into a tincture, then you're going to have a concentrated amount, but you're going to have some narrowness of extraction. Not all the chemical constituents will be extracted through the medium of alcohol. So one of the easiest ways of remedying this is, you know, usually you take a tea, a tincture, maybe, you know, figure out what to sneak in your food and maybe add uh, herb powder to your smoothie. And that's generally the problem is that people don't understand that when working with herbs, herbs have bodies, and that's very important for our bodies. And when you start trying to do things like make herbal protocols for, you know, medical conditions, it's going to take a lot more than swallowing a pill. And we still have the mentality of pill swallowing. Like I just was talking with a woman who has fibromyalgia, and she's saying she takes turmeric for fibromyalgia. And I asked her how much, and she said one pill. <laughs> That's like a smidgen. It's nothing. That's like having a bonfire, and you try to put it out with like a, a dropper of, of water. And so that's the problem. We, The FDA has made it such that herbalism is legal, but to discuss protocols and, yes. and dosages is not legal. So yeah, people that's are very important to understand, too. Because people then go to the health food store and you're looking for a cure to your issue and you say if you buy a tincture, you turn it around, you look at the instructions and that is for maintenance. That is right. not for acute conditions because that would be illegal to prescribe for an acute condition. Real quick, that's exactly what I would try and tell people as well too is that a lot of those, just like you said, is – you know, for exactly for that, for maintenance. And if I was dealing with something, you know, like I, I had an onset of whatever it may be, I mm -hmm. knew that I needed to take higher amounts of whatever this may be, because I knew that I needed to hyperdose or however you wanted to call it with this type of supplement. And, and it was very slippery rocks. You had to be careful with what you said to people, because again, yeah, that there's certain things that you can say, and there's certain things that you can't say just for your own safety and for the company that you may be working for. So safety as well. Yeah. And for the fact that um, there is a certain education around herbalism that is linguistically forced. <laughs> mm -hmm. And 
and and real cures and things like that are quite suppressed for obvious reasons. And so to discuss herbalism is an act of rebellion. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and all you're trying to do is help people. I, yeah. and, ah, and I so understand that and I so feel that. Yeah, it's quite it's quite fun how I've had to I just wanted to provide, you know, weeds to people to help them and now I've got a secondary education and legality and <laughs> legal terms yeah. and, you know it's just like ridiculous it's well, like uh, magic yeah so back to our friendly bacteria and maybe not so friendly bacteria <clears throat> you were talking about how serotonin is mainly produced in our gut or in the enteric nervous system and that basically i heard that there are some there's some studies out now saying that it actually can somehow it, it travels through a certain way, right? And uh, this, the, there is a nerve in our brain that is directly connected both to our heart and our gut, and it's called the vagus nerve. Can, can you maybe go into a little bit more detail about the vagus nerve and, and exactly what role that plays in our body? Sure. It's actually um, connected to every organ. There oh, okay. is a, a cord connected from every organ to the brain stem, the... the uh, uh, spinal nerves and it is one of the ways that the electrical messaging system of the being of the body uh, transfers education so how's the liver doing the brain asks and the vagus nerve sends an impulse down to the liver and it's connected to it and then the liver sends a response up so you could think of like echolocation right so this is happening a lot. This is how the body is communicating with itself. Um, I don't know exactly why the vagus nerve uh, is becoming popular now and had been kind of ignored in, in, in previous time. But it's really interesting because if you think about this connection of how serotonin is produced in the gut, and though the serotonin does not necessarily travel, the, the actual chemistry of serotonin does not necessarily travel up to the brain. It sends an impulse through the vagus nerve up to the brain like, hey, be happy. We have enough of this stuff. So, so it's, it's really – It's not the other way around. It's so the, so the uh, I just want to make it clear to the audience. So mm -hmm. the brain does not send a signal to the gut asking – or telling it to make serotonin, it is actually the opposite. It is the, actually the stomach or the gut that actually sends the signal to the brain. Well, you know, what you have is a really good, subtle question, which is hard to determine, and there is no necessary reason for a primary cause okay. in this situation, you know? So it's like when you're talking about lightning fast signal responses it's hard to know where that starts mm, however true. once you create an assumption about it like how we have done about how the brain is the leader look at all of the error in perception culture we have this idea that we are brains that are being traveled around by the body and that's like me is my brain. And this is our whole cultural perspective. So um, maybe what we can say at this point is just that there's a larger communication going on. Okay. Um, along with that is really insightful because uh, Candace Pert and others have actually found that there are neuropeptides all throughout the body. So this is neuron tissue. So previously we used to think, oh, neurons – that's in the brain, and the brain is encased in a cranium, and that's your smartness. Then they started finding there's actually neuron tissue all over the body, like your toes have brain tissue. And they found now that there are several nexuses of large mats of neuron tissue, and they're interestingly associated basically with the metaphysical idea of the chakras. And so where are they? There's a huge one at your chest the heart, there's a huge one in your gut, and there's a huge one in the genital region. So has anyone ever felt like, oh, wow, I feel like my internal process is my head, my heart, my gut, and my genitals having an internal discussion? Hmm. You know, that's actually, so maybe what we can say is you are actually much more of a round table uh, than thinking that your brain is the command center. It's taking all this information and there's, there's a circular 
nature to it. It's not a hierarchical structure. It's so much more beautiful to think of it that way as well. It definitely helps culturally because then the whole idea of hierarchy, the whole idea of social structure and cultural structure gets built on those fundamental assumptions, you know? So the person with the biggest brain and the most thinking and analysis gets to be the leader, mm-hmm. you know, which is a fundamental problem because sometimes the people who feel the most have much better ideas than the people who just rationally analyze. Right. And, you know, I'm feeling like a lot of people that probably are listening to this episode, they probably are coming from a place where they need help. You know, they, they're probably seeking this episode out because they realize, oh, wow, okay, you know, I'm already experiencing these type of issues and I need some more knowledge to take care of this. And they're probably thinking, hey, you know what? I'm hearing bacteria. I'm hearing, I'm hearing food. Um, I'm just going to go to the store. I'm going to buy some Activia. What, cool. what do you say about that? <laughs> So first of all, you have to be we have to be very careful because what's largely happening is due to <coughs> Louis Pasteur his invention of pasteurization in around World War 1, I, I think, this got canned food to Europe so we can have our soldiers eat beef stroganoff instead of like freeze-dried food and it was a huge advancement. Everybody was super happy. It was a big revolution. But that created pasteurization laws that once you get towards homesteading or once you get towards natural foods, you realize that a lot of things are getting destroyed. So to for a company, right, a yogurt company, to have to, to grow raw yogurt with bacteria and then have to pasteurize it by law to make it sellable – and then what they do is they have isolated lactobacilli and acidophilus. They basically inoculate it with pills. So it's not the yogurt's actually uh, variation and diversity of bacteria that it makes for itself. It's added, mm-hmm. right? So when you're looking at all these yogurt products, which are first of all loaded with – a lot of them are loaded with sugar, yes. right? Every single one of them is pasteurized because it would be illegal otherwise. Now, the easiest way to get around that is yogurt can be made on your countertop for very little money, you know, and all you have to do is knock it with an old batch and you can make countertop yogurt. The problem is it's not super thick. That whole thickness is either made by lots of boiling or by adding thickeners like carrageenan, et cetera, which is not good for the body either. Mm-hmm. So, We have this whole problem that anything that is a cultured or fermented food gets sterilized and pasteurized. And therefore, then the companies who are trying to go through this large market regulated by the FDA have to add these things. That is not the same. That is not the same as the natural bacteria within that yogurt actually learning how to auto-digest itself. And I know that might sound gross, but if you think of the cow, that's actually what's happening, and that's what happens in fermentation. The bacteria start opening up the cellular tissue and make it easier to digest because then you're dealing with uh, consuming vitamins and minerals, not trying to break open this hard cellulose material. Um, So... The fact of fermentation is getting lost in the FDA's regulations, and you know probably 10% of that is good. However, uh, you know uh, there's a fermentation uh, teacher. His name is Sandor Katz, and he pointed out in one lecture that there are no known cases of anyone ever getting sick by home fermented foods. But I know plenty of cases of fast food restaurants which use bleach, which use all the factory standards, having food poisoning epidemics all over the place. That's a great point. That's a great point. And, you know, and yogurt is just one aspect, just one food that people can possibly make at home for a relatively inexpensive price. Um, but there are several, there's just a huge category of fermented foods out there culturally, right? Like, uh, yeah. for example, we have kimchi. We have, um, we have kombucha, we have ginger bugs, uh, ginger Mm -hmm. beer, uh, you know, how do we go about entering this world of bacteria? Yeah, this is, this is a really good question. And I think a lot of it has to do with, um, our ability to vary, uh, things that we're not used to consuming. Um, 
With that, we have to be careful that all of those things have basically two forms. Um, so kimchi can easily be just cooked cabbage. Um, people are probably familiar with that bag of sauerkraut that gets put on hot dogs. That's not fermented food. That's cabbage cooked in vinegar, and I'm pretty sure any single person in their right mind can chop cabbage and boil it in vinegar, and you have that stuff without all the fake preservatives and without the fact that any acidic medium, if it touches plastic, it's going to leach the plastic. So mm -hmm. not only are you getting the bonus of uh, added preservatives, you're getting added uh, BPAs and, and phthalates into your body, Delicious. which is not good. Deliciously <laughs> not good for you're you. Right. So <clears throat> we have to be careful that when there are two kinds of kimchi, you know, there are two kinds of ginger beer, there are two kinds of fermented anything which um, typically seems to be so there is a commercial um, made item and then there is a homemade item one that is prepared traditionally right yes but a lot of new companies are finding their ways around it and doing certain things um, you know uh, everybody's familiar with kombucha probably and mm -hmm. that having it got pulled off the shelves for having alcohol and all this drama that was and they're ridiculous. trying yeah, they're trying to find their way through these things. And there's a lot of now what you would call raw fermented foods, so kimchi and sauerkraut that are said to be raw. It's all over the label, like big letters so that people buy it. The question is, are they still using heat to pasteurize and at what temperature and technicalities of raw due to the FDA is different than you thinking like, no, it was never treated with heat. Okay, It's well not necessarily true. Well, so what, and that's a, you brought up a great point right there with temperature. And, and I know the answer to this, but maybe for people who don't know, what exactly temperature would it need to be under in order to keep all the natural constituents alive? You know, it's interesting because from a, from a manufacturing standards point, I think it's like 120 from, mm -hmm. from the 120 degrees Fahrenheit, from the sort of, I guess, raw foods world they would say something like 110 degrees um, to preserve the enzymes. Uh, from a do-it-yourself perspective, you don't need heat to make fermented food. So right. it, uh, the more that we take the responsibility towards our own homesteading or self-preservation techniques or farming or gardening and learning how to preserve that – in earth-based ways, the less we have to deal with all that crazy nonsense anyway. Right. So so maybe you could walk us through a couple of your favorite ferments. Maybe explain to the audience exactly <coughs> um, some of your favorites and maybe briefly, you know, I'm sure they could go to your website to find uh, more of this information out, but maybe a couple, uh, maybe a couple things that they can do at home um, after this episode that might be applicable to them. Sure. Um, one of the things that you reminded me of is I actually put on my YouTube channel, which is Return to Nature Skills. Um, I actually have a whole live video that I did teaching people how to ferment, and there was live question and answer. Oh, and perfect. so that's up there, and anybody can check that out. But briefly, um, it's actually quite simple, and one of my favorite ways to make a fermented, you know, it's kind of like this whole style of. The only difference between kimchi and sauerkraut is basically choices of vegetables. Um, otherwise, it's pretty much – it's the same process. It's just a matter of using what cultures had available. So um, you know, kimchi is generally spicier. They use Napa cabbage, lots of chilies, etc. So what I kind of do is, uh, again, to coin a phrase from Sandor Katz, uh, kraut chi is mm. basically I just use what is available. And so that generally is like some carrots, cabbage, ginger. You could use garlic. Um, it's a good place to start. If you have uh, beets, right, celery, uh, that'll all work. Um, another thing that's cool is you can like save your kale or collard green stems and you can chop them finely and you can put them in because they'll really soften up. Um, when you ferment them. And so you basically can either chop it by hand and then salt it, then, uh, or you can use like a, a food processor and you kind of just keep rotating it until some of it's juicy and some of it's chunky. And you literally shove it down in a jar after you salt it 
and then there, you just have just real hmm? quick is there is there a uh, specific salt that you like using because uh, you're not going to use uh, typical non salt non iodized correct? salt okay. really that's then anything uh, beyond that gets tricky as far as what is the best salt and what can anybody mm. access so as long as it right. doesn't have iodine which we know iodine is an antibacterial substance so there we are again inundating ourselves mm -hmm. with antibacterial substances coincidentally. <laughs> Not to mention fluoride and chloride in tap water are exactly. also antibacterial substances that we're bathing in and consuming on a regular basis. So just an aside there. Um, so you want to salt it. You salt it liberally. The question is always how much to salt it. And basically like make mouth – remember we used to gargle with salt water, you know, something like that. And so um, then you just shove it down in the jar. I always like to use tapered jars, so not jars that go straight up, but jars that have kind of a neck around them. Okay. <laughs> because the tricky thing is that you don't want to have any vegetables that are floating to the surface. Um, so to get back to the next step, you shove them in a jar, you push them all down, and then you, um, you'll have water a water line, a salt water line. If you do it really good and you make the vegetables really mushy, they'll make their own juices. But if you don't, you'll have to add a little bit of salt water to get that water line above the vegetable line. Make sense so far? Absolutely. Cool. From there, you're just going to have to find a convenient way to basically make it so that those vegetable pieces don't float to the surface of the water line. And if they do, it will mold. There's very easy ways around that. Um, what I like to do is I'll take the outer cabbage leaves, and you can see that in my video too, and I'll just shove them in a way that basically stops the vegetables from floating to the top. And then from there, I'll just pick out anything that's at the surface. Um, the other easy thing is I think people screw up a lot because then they make their ferment and they put it like in a cabinet somewhere and think that you check on it in two months, and by then they've made like a, oh, a scary science experiment. Oh, yeah. You know, so if you watch it, if you observe it, you know, every couple of days and oops, a little vegetable piece is at the surface and you just take that off, then, you know, in 20 to 30 days, you're going to have really delicious fermented food. Um, to put a cap, a lid, right, you can use then because you, you want it to be, it's an aerobic fermentation. So that means it needs oxygen. It's not an anaerobic fermentation, which means you suppress the oxygen. So you put a lid on loosely. Um, and if you want to use a ball jar lid, the problem is it can taste kind of metallic. Uh, it like kind of leaches that. So if you use like a plate, you know, that, that works pretty well. Um, a ball jar lid. Some people will use a cloth and yeah, a rubber cheese band. cloth, right? The problem with that is I don't know how it's magic. Uh, I guess it's condensation and precipitation occurs, and you will find that your cloth is soaking wet and kimchi juice is like all over your countertop. I don't. It just absorbs the, the moisture. Oh, wow. um, so that's something that people might want to be careful or mindful of. That tends to happen. Um, you can always just keep your jar of ferment in like a bowl or, or a dish so that anything that drips out the side obviously stays in the bowl or the dish. Um, from there, you just have to leave it alone and uh, sing it songs. If you don't sing it songs, it's not going to work. Listen again, people. Listen. <laughs> and so uh, after, you know, seven to 30 days, you have like you could have a gallon of fermented vegetables. Versus spending twenty dollars on exactly. eight ounces at a time. Uh huh. And because you know what, I, I know that in time of need, uh, for myself right now, and and for others out there who are looking to maybe get a little fancy, they they do sell traditional Crocs that you can purchase, uh, for yeah. example, on Amazon. But um, yeah, that you know when I need because I have I, I follow something that uh, Daniel Vitalis. Uh, actually taught me, which is uh, conscious omnivory. So I try to have these certain food groups pretty much throughout the day, which is uh, bacterial, obviously, from fermented foods, um, plant, animal, and fungal. Seaweed. Excuse me. Oh, there we go, fungal. <laughs> so I try to get these in all the time. However, if I can't, I will go to the store and I'll purchase something. And just like Dan said, it can be 
very, very expensive. Like another something that I like, uh, another uh, item that I do like to make personally at home is bone broth which is very nourishing and healing to the gut. And I like to combine those two, you know, so I'll have like maybe a little serving of whatever fermented food I have on hand, and I'll follow that with some of my bone broth. But these items at the store, if you don't prepare them yourself, can be very, very expensive, especially if you're if you're working on a tight budget. So I'm just glad that you you brought that up because yeah, it for for average people who are looking just to introduce some of these healthy foods into their diet, it can be quite expensive if, if you go the regular commercial route. It can be, but um, I really like Michael Pollan had this uh, phrase basically, you know, because you hear this over and over about people uh, not wanting to buy organic because it's expensive, etc. Mm-hmm. And his simple rule was, well, you could either pay now <laughs> or you can pay later. Yep. And, you know, I think it's better to splurge that 12 to 15 bucks on eight ounces of sauerkraut than not have it um, and to procrastinate and to wait. And so, you know, I I mean, what what better are you going to spend your $15 on than your health, which will hopefully prevent you from having to go to the hospital or the doctors and get loaded up with like, you know, multiple thousand dollars of bills. So, um, you know, we need to be flexible about spending our money on health. That's another thing with herbalism is um, often as I was talking about the dosages, you know, how generally the dosages are low. um, I think that also comes from people trying to nurse their, you know, you go to the health food store and you buy a two ounce tincture. It's like $25. And that really is generally if you have like a cold or a flu. That's like three or four days worth of tincture if you are a 150-pound person. But people will nurse that, and it'll it'll stay in the cabinet for six years. And that's part of the problem is uh, I guess, you know, that's the nature of capitalism and inflation and, uh, you know, supply and demand and creating a need. But that is all part of why we want to take this sort of rewilding or homesteading mm-hmm. or – you know, take back our skill set and take back our communities so that we can barter and trade and have the cabbage coming out of the backyard or the ferments coming from your neighbor or whatever it is. Um, But speaking of some of those commercial fermented foods, um, I'm a big fan of miso. I would love to make that, but that's like a whole big process. But uh, that's something that other people can check out too, is adding some miso. Like if you make rice, you know, add a add miso into it uh once it cools down a bit and that's really good too mm. yeah it is that's actually one of my favorites well yeah. dan the you know i think we've we've covered a lot today and i want nice. to be respectful of your time and before we go if you could do me a favor and just maybe give a a quick little shout out to how people can get a hold of you and maybe stay in contact with the work that you're doing and maybe some of your social media handles in case they might cool. want to contact you personally Great. So, you know, my in quick, my vision is to really start going on tour uh, nationally by the spring. Thanks to all the uh, you know donations and help from viewers like you. Isn't that what PBS used to say? So, um, well, if it's then, still around. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, <laughs> another topic for another day. Yes. Hopefully, hopefully PBS can stay around. Um, but um, so. I do a lot of stuff uh, on social media. So uh, Return to Nature Skills is often my handle. That's YouTube and Facebook. Or I have a personal uh, Facebook site, which I'm not allowed to have any more friends. But you can follow on there or join in the discussion, and that is Dan D. Lion. Three words, basically. Dan D. Lion. D-E. And uh, anybody can feel free to check that out. Also, I have Instagram. And uh, that is Return to Nature. And then my website is returntonature.us. And uh, I have a lot of classes for the rest of the winter around the northeast area. Uh, Actually, if anybody hears this, I don't know when it's coming out, but next weekend is the NOFA New Jersey Northeast Organic Farmers Association uh, Winter Conference, which I'll be teaching at. And that's a really great gathering if anybody's in the New Jersey or surrounding area. I'll throw that up on the Facebook page because this this episode is going to be out a little bit afterwards. However, um, I will definitely be sure that that people get that information in time. Yeah, it's just a great – there's NOFAs all over the place. Uh, uh, 
and they have winter conferences all over the place and spring and summer conferences. And that's just really one of those refreshing gatherings. It's like a reskilling gathering or something when you just all the people who never go anywhere come out of the woodwork and are in one place. And it just feels so good to like have that. Okay, we're doing it. You know, we we're the people behind the scenes making it happen. That's right. So that's why it's great that you're doing what you're doing and just, you know, bringing people together and, uh, you know, getting focus points. I think that's huge. Well, again, Dan, if there's anything that I can personally do to help your journey in any way, I want, you know, I, I try not to make these episodes with my guests one off. I, I want this to be, you know, our first experience in getting to know each other, of course, but also uh, the beginning of a relationship. You know, I, I yeah. want I want to have you as a friend not as a guest or an interviewee. So uh, again, I'm very grateful of your time here and I'm, I'm very appreciative of the work that you're putting into the world. So again, Dan, thank you so very much for being here on Ancestral Health Radio. Thank you too, man. Sun power glow and the showers flow, make the flowers grow in my garden. Rich soil to sow, can't spoil this show. Boys and girls say ho in my garden. Plant the seed indeed, will sprout plenty to feed. This tree's never fallen. Now pull that weed up and turn the beat up. Dig deep, my darling. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Ancestral Health Radio. If you like the podcast, then do me a quick favor and head over to iTunes to leave an honest rating or review of the show. This helps improve the show's ranking and visibility with other would-be hunter-gatherer gardeners just like yourself. But if you can't do that, I'll totally understand. We're still cool. But maybe you could share this episode on your favorite social media network or at the very least, continue the conversation with myself and the tribe on the official Ancestral Health Radio Facebook page. But whatever you do, remember to check out all the resources mentioned earlier in this episode by reading the show notes at AncestralHealthRadio.com. Yeah.